You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in Heaven, uh, today we're gathered here, here on planet Earth, and we're still here. And so we want, Lord, that your Spirit will bless us and guide us, teach us fresh things and true things, and... Lord, give us uh, clear insights about where we've been, where we should have been, where we're going, and where we should be going. So please, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer. Please send your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome today. Uh, we've got five days, and we're going to go through some righteousness by faith, some last generation uh, theme, and uh, these are all kind of connected. Um, we have, uh, I have outlines, we'll give you some uh, handouts one or two days, and we have some outlines you can download. But uh, mostly what I'm looking at is I'm going to sort of mostly present uh, kind of almost a preaching style, and then at the end we'll have Q&A, and I'll try my best to answer any questions you have if we have time. And uh, I'm just so glad you chose to come today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to uh, go ahead and open to Numbers 13 and 14. You probably should start with 13. Um, this building is an interesting building. The University Christian Movement, with offices in Interchurch Center, New York City, uh, voted itself out of existence in 1968. And they had this sign posted on their door that said this, gone out of business, didn't know what our business was. And uh, that was the end of them. Now the building's still there, the building we had a picture of. God has assigned a vital mission to his church, Seventh-day Adventist church. We are to be Elijah the prophet. We are to be John the Baptist. We are to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. And this assignment was given to us back in the 1840s, and yet, if you check your calendar, you'll find out that you and I, we're all still here. And so the question is, why? Uh, it's interesting, by the way, many people have uh, written books and papers and articles telling us that don't worry about it, God will just come when He's good and ready, just take a deep breath and relax, everything's going to be fine. I'm not sure that's the right answer. I think what we want to do is we want to find a Bible answer uh, to these kinds of questions. And so today I want to look with you, especially at Numbers 13 and 14, uh, where we will find a comparable Bible situation. In some places, the Bible speaks about God's people speeding the return of Jesus. In other places, the Bible speaks about uh, our, our delaying the return of Jesus. Sometimes we advance God's purposes, sometimes we delay God's purposes. And so today I want to look with you at, I think, a biblical example of, is it possible to bring about a delay in God's purposes? And so, again, there's been a lot of argumentation, uh, oh, we could never delay God's purposes, but let's look into our Bible and see if we might find if, if uh, there have been cases like this. So... Uh, let's see here. All right, we're going to look at this story, and I think you know the story of the Exodus. And I think you know that before they got into the Promised Land, they had some side trips. In fact, they had a lot of time in the rest area on the way to the kingdom. Too much time. So uh, we're looking at Numbers 13 and 14, and... Uh, again, I've outlined this whole thing in a handout. Some of our handouts are just downloads, but some we'll give to you. Um, but it's very good to go through and look at some of these chapters and just kind of block out what's happening at each different portion. And so, uh, anyway, we'll have that available. So, you know the story. Moses had led the people from their captivity in Egypt to the Promised Land. Uh, he was instructed by God there at the beginning of Numbers 13 to send a group of people, go and take a look at the land, see what's going on, scout it out. Uh, one leader is chosen from each of the 12 tribes. And so we are 
going to see what they did. They began to go through. Here's a little map. Uh, they went basically started in the south. They went through and spent about 40 days in this, went to the north, came on back through, collected samples along the way, took, uh, took information about the cities and the people, and they came back later with all their stuff. And so you might imagine that the people who were back at camp they are very excited. They've been come out of Egypt. Now they're on the edge of the promised land. The group's coming back any day now, and they're just full of excitement. What's going to happen? And that would be the spirit, the attitude in camp. So um, this is a picture from a few years, just a couple of years ago. Remember they brought back that big cluster of grapes? And I always kind of wondered, well, must I imagine how big it was, but of course now you can go on the internet and find a combination of things. This is a, a photograph from uh, 2015 from the land of Israel. And how'd you like to have that in your backyard garden? So I think that uh, they can have some pretty good uh, fruits and, and pomegranates and grapes. Here's grapes, figs. And so they come and they must have spread out a tarp or a blanket and began to put out all their uh, fruit. First they show the fruit of the land and and uh, they spread it out there. The whole camp is gathered up. It must have been quite an interesting meeting to be at. And lots of excitement. And uh, you know the, the statement was in verse 26, if you're in 13, verse 26, this land, truly this land flows with milk and honey. And you look at that and say, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. We can, we can make granola out of some of that. We can do that. Uh, so they begin to give their report about the land. They start with the fruits and all that. But there's 12 people reporting, and uh, pretty soon we have the, the sharing. The sharing is it flows with milk and honey. Everybody agrees it flows with milk and honey. But there's not uh, two spies, there's 12. And I think you all know this story. So as you know, they begin to report now on the rec reconnaissance about the local inhabitants. And what's the report? And if you read through this and, and plow into it a little bit, uh, we'll see as we go along. First of all, they report there's a lot of people there. Uh, there's the, the inhabitants of the land are, are strong. Uh, they have walled cities. Here's a picture of a reproduction of um, what they think. Uh, I think this was actually Jerusalem before it was invaded. This is a model that somebody made. Uh, based on the excavations, they think that Jerusalem probably looked sort of like that. Um, and so big walled cities and the people, the people are strong, the cities are large, the cities are fortified. Not only are there many people, but we also find out that the people are very strong. Some of the people are actually descendants of those Philistine giants. So the people are talking to each other. And you know, a nervous chatter must have stirred among those people and concern must have risen up because you can see as you, as you look at the report in Numbers 13, Caleb sees this, he sees the people, they're nervous, he sees them talking, and uh, the people are sort of getting nervous about this. And so Caleb jumps up and what does he say? Let's go up at once, he says. Let's take possession. We're well able to overcome it. And he was ready to go. Caleb and Joshua, but you know what? His ten fellow travelers, they raise their voices and they are going to add some interesting words into the mix. And so what is, that, that, what is it that they say? They say the exact opposite. We are not able. We can't do it. It's impossible. They twist the story. And they even claim that the land, remember they said it flows with milk and honey. Now they say that this land, it devours all the people. Well, these, these 12 spies came back safe and sound with lots of grapes. Yeah, well, I guess it didn't devour everybody. But they're changing the story. They're changing the story on us. So here they are. Here's all the grapes and figs and, and pomegranates and stuff laid out. And they say, oh, no, this, this, this land, it just eats up all the people. And the people there, yes, there's many, but their cities are fortified. And if you go on and, and look at Numbers 13 and 14, uh, you find out that it's not just the, the descendants of the giants, not just some of them, but suddenly all the people of the land are giants. And you can imagine, uh, you can see how 
the story begins to change. God delivered them from Egypt, which in itself was an, uh, almost an unparalleled miracle. They go through the wilderness, survive that, survive their own nonsense there, and now they're on the edge of the promised land. Uh, but now they say, we can't do it. It's just, we just can't do it. Oh, woe, to, woe is us. We can't do it. So uh, there's high exaggeration going on, and then they go on and say, you know, that the, we were like grasshoppers in their sight and in our sight. You've all, you all know this story. You know what's going on here? This is high exaggeration. It really is. Uh, but that's what's going on, and they leave God out of the discussion, and they're calculating as though they've got to do this all themselves. At all, they're going to have to do everything. God isn't going to help them at all. You're just on your own. But that was kind of strange because didn't he sort of deliver them from Egypt? I mean, they didn't do it. <laughs> they'd, be making they'd be still making bricks if they, if they were going to do it that way. No, God intervened and uh, brought them out. So what you have here now is the report is made, even though the evidence is before them, it's a good land. Uh, even though Joshua and Caleb speak up and say, we can do this, God is with us. Uh, the camp goes into basically uh, law, mental la-la land. They go crazy. And they're up all night wailing and crying and complaining. They, they, uh, the, virtually the whole congregation has fallen under an influence of distortion. We can't do it. We just can't do it. And so they cry all night. They shout all night. They weep all night. And uh, have you ever seen a kid in a temper tantrum? You know, and at first they're kind of stimulated and really, uh, uh, but then they, they become even more stimulated. I think you can imagine that's probably what's going on here. The camp, and here you've got, you know, a few million people. And before, you know, morning comes, they're just, they've just completely uh, lost their minds. The reaction is in and all night they're weeping and shouting. And guess what? The next day is worse. The next day is even worse. And again, you already know this story. Uh, it seems like everyone in the camp is murmuring, and they're murmuring against the leadership, these terrible leaders. Wouldn't you like to have on your church board Moses and Paul and Caleb? And, but anyway, uh, no, the, the reason we're in trouble here is because of our bad leaders. So they begin to elect leaders. We're going to trade these guys out. Get the, where's the nominating committee? They're going to replace Moses. And they work themselves into such a lather, complaining and talking nonsense and murmuring that they begin to say, we would be better off if we would have died in Egypt than to come right here, right to the edge of the promised land. And that's where things stand. And they get worse. Caleb and Joshua, they're trying to um, get, them, get them to have faith. They say that God was trying to kill their women and children. We'd be better off if we'd have died in Egypt. we start to elect leaders to go back. And finally, under pretty much, I believe, Satan's control, they are going around on the ground gathering up rocks because now they're going to stone their leaders to death. No more Moses, no more Joshua, Caleb, and so on. Although I'm guessing the 10 of the 12 spies probably would have been spared. But... Uh, that's the situation. And then we come to this time when God just intervenes. And it's a good thing he intervened because otherwise the story would have perhaps come out differently. But Satan is rejoicing and suddenly there's a blinding whiteness. The divine glory appears at the tabernacle and God starts a conversation with Moses. And what does he say? How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have before performed among them. So now we're in 14 of Numbers. And that is, uh, now we get into this long conversation with God and Moses. But what you have here is a crazy time. If God hadn't intervened, uh, Moses perhaps would have been killed. And I don't think they'd have made it into the Promised Land, by the way. Do you? But... Uh, God starts his conversation with Moses. It's a very long one. It goes from verse chapter 4, verse 14, verses 13 to 19. And there's this lengthy discussion between God and Moses. And you remember how the conversation goes, right? These people, why don't we just dump them and I'll start all over with you, Moses. And 
course, God was really, I think, wanting Moses to do about what he did. And Moses said, no, no, let's not do that. And Moses has some pretty good arguments. So his powerful appeal is this, God, you are too powerful not to succeed. If you don't do this, the nations will hear that you were unable to bring this people into the promised land. And so that's a pretty good move by Moses. He says, God, it's your glory. Your glory's on the line. Your reputation's at stake. Your character's at stake. You started this. You delivered the people. Or did you? Are you going to finish? Or are you just, is it just going to come to pieces? And so Moses is prompting God. I think really God was prompting Moses too. And so we have this uh, situation. And the, what you have here then is the argument for Moses, he makes a pretty interesting move, and it's worth looking at there in your Bible. Here we're looking at uh, Numbers 14. And uh, if you go back, though, before we get to that, that's going to be 14, 18. In Exodus 33, uh, and in Exodus 34, do you remember what happened when God showed his name to Moses? Moses said, you know, show us your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I'm going to do that. And uh, you go over here, stand in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by and cause all my goodness to come be pass before you. And then when he did that, what was it that was said? God gave his name. He says, I am merciful and gracious. And Moses got to see God's name. So this is before this. So now this is where Moses makes his move. So I think that when that happened, that impression made on Moses was, was very strong. God showed his way to Moses. He caused his goodness to pass before Moses. He showed his name to Moses. And to Moses, he showed exactly who and what he was. Moses saw that, it, that God's name, God's character, is built into his Ten Commandment law. And you might have missed it. I might have missed it. But Moses didn't miss it. And if you look at Numbers 14, verse 18, let's look at Moses' argument to God. So Numbers 14 and verse 18, look at his argument. Uh, maybe we'll start at 17. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving inequity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And so that is Moses' argument. You were too great not to bring us out. Please have mercy on us. But did you notice? Did you notice what Moses is doing? Pardon us according to your character. And I think we run into some issues here sometimes when we, um, because what do we want to do? We want to be pardoned according to part of God's character. We want that his mercy will be expressed toward us, but not the responsibility parts. We want his patience and his long-suffering, but we don't want the part that says, no, you're, you're accountable and you're responsible. If we take God's, the attributes of God's name that are, that are shown here in these, in these verses, uh, we could sort of boil it down into these five portions. Notice these. God's merciful and gracious. He's merciful. Long-suffering. Uh, abounding in goodness and truth, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But on number five that I've listed there, um, he doesn't clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon their children. Is that? Now, we emphasize God's mercy, don't we? His patience. And I wonder if we don't sometimes worship God in terms, in our terms, instead of his terms. We want to say, God, you are merciful and patient and, and, oh, we just love you. We're glad. I'm going to worship you for that. But God's character has more pieces. And when he passed before Moses, he didn't say, I'm going to tell you the warm, fuzzy parts. I'm going to leave off the responsibility parts. Instead, he said, no, the fifth one here, I will not clear the guilty. God will not clear the guilty. The unrepentant guilty. So what do we have? We have Moses and God talking about what's going to happen next. And I think we sometimes highlight the parts that we want to. But we are, if we're neglecting parts of God's character, then we're not worshiping the same God. We're worshiping kind of a portion of God. We're just worshiping the fun parts. 
It's like the kids, you know, and I was probably the same way. When you have delicious stuff on your plate, but said, mom says, you know, you have to eat your, you have to eat the lima, lima beans too. And we want to have the, uh, the delicious lasagna without the lima beans. But we got to have all the parts. So I think there's a problem sometimes when we, God has one whole character, but we are worshiping him in terms of bits and pieces, certain attributes that we want to highlight. Moses, however, when he makes his argument, and it's, by the way, it's the winning argument, you know that. When Moses makes his argument, he says, basically, God, you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this. I, we agree. We know that. Would you pardon us according to the wholeness of your character? And a lot of us might be a little bit careful about that. God, pardon me according to your mercy. But God has a plan and a purpose, and he had a plan and a purpose for his people. And so Moses' argument is, pardon my people, pardon your people based on the entirety of your character. And God's going to agree to that. So, we accept him fully or we're not accepting, accepting him. God has one whole character, not just bits and pieces. And I want to um, put a little quote here from a book that a man named Herbert Douglas wrote some years ago. Uh, Herb Douglas was editor of the Review, and he wrote a series of books at different times. One of his books is called The End. In fact, it was reprinted here not so long ago. I don't know if they, I didn't get into the ABC yet to see if we have it here. But here's a quotation from his book, The End, page 20. This is what Herb Douglas says. He's talking about some of the same stuff we're talking about today. Regarding the end of the world and the return of Jesus, God has no contingency plans but to be true to himself and to his way of dealing with sin as, long as he has since the beginning of the great controversy. So God doesn't have a, a kind of a series of weird things he's going to do if things don't come out the way he wants. He's going to deal with things the way that he always deals with things. God is pretty consistent. In fact, that's an understatement. God is very consistent. He's merciful. He's God. He can, he can adjust things, but it's always going to be within that space where his character is. It's never going to be according to just a portion. This is another way of saying, by the way, what? If we look at what, what Herb Douglas says here, this is another way of saying that we accept all the Bible. We accept all of God's dealings with sin and sinners. Not just some of them, but all of them. We're accepting all of God's character, and we desire and emulate, to, and emulate all of his character, not just certain parts. We'll take the peas and the carrots and the squash and the lima beans and not just the cherry pie. And in the end, we will not be surprised. We're going to agree these are all good bits, and we're not going to be surprised what happens in this wilderness journey. So what's the agreement? God says to Moses, I'm going to agree to those terms. I'm going to judge your, your, the people based on my character. I'm going to be merciful to them based on my character. And you continue reading in Numbers 14. And so let's see what happens. So back to the story. The spies have gone out. They've returned. They told this distorted version of the facts. The camp has rejected Moses. Leadership. They've elected new leadership. They've come to the point of stoning the faithful spies and leaders. Moses, uh, God intervenes. Moses argues for God to be true to himself and continue to labor to bring Israel home to the land of promise. So then what happens next? God agrees. But he tells Moses, he tells Moses plainly that he will not clear the guilty. I'm going to be true to the righteous character, my, the entirety of my righteous character. I will not clear the guilty. The very leaders of Israel have conspired to replace God, and now God tells Moses that those rebels, and this is verse 23, notice what God says, Certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So God's going to see to it that Joshua and Caleb enter. He's going to see to it that the children will enter. In fact, God even has kind of his sense of irony and a sense of humor going on here, because what did he, does he say? He reminds the people, you said that I, was going to, I wanted to kill your children in the wilderness. Well, guess what? You will die in the wilderness, but... I'm going to make sure that your children go in. And so God's purpose was delayed, but it wasn't, wasn't taken apart. 
God just sent another generation in. The other generation didn't, well, there were exceptions, Joshua and Caleb, but most of that generation didn't make it in to the promised land. Was God surprised? Did God say, oh, I didn't know they were going to pick those 12 guys. If I'd have known they were going to pick those 12 spies, why, I would know this was going to fail. Was God caught by surprise on that? No. God knew the character of each person. He knew that, who knows dynamics, crowd dynamics? I think God does. He knew how it would be. Who, who's, who knows the most about psychology for sinners? God does. He knew that people would uh, basically lose their mind and pull out their hair and say, oh, t- 10 of the 12 say we can't do it. We, we have to go back. God knew that. But the faithful spies went anyway. They came back and they were faithful anyway. God uh, had this conversation with Moses. God knew that Moses would say, no, don't, don't make a new nation out of me. Please do what you can and bring these people in. And I think that God even knew that Moses would argue to God, God, you judge us on your character. And of course, God, that's the only way God would judge, is on his character. So we're looking at this story and what goes on. You know the rest of the story. He says, Joshua and Caleb, they will enter. And he gives this command. And let's look at Numbers 14, and we're going to read verses 26 to 35. We're kind of getting a little bit more of this story. Uh, What happens next? This is Numbers 14, verses 26 through, um, through 35. So here it is. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation to complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you have complained against me, shall fall in this wilderness. All of you, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb and the son of Jephunneh, rather, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, this is not evangelistic language, as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds or wanderers in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. So that's a pretty grim portion there, but there's, there's good news still coming. But it's useful to look at these Bible stories. Go back to the text, especially whenever you read a book from, that's been published and say, oh, well, we're just going to be here till God says to go. That's not what I'm finding in this story. What I'm finding in this story is the principles are all there. They're all the right, right in the Word. And God operates the way He says He'll operate. And He's very fair about how He does it. So, so some have... Uh, some have regarded the, this pronouncement of this sentence as strange, you know. Why would God do that? Was God having a bad day? He's being so harsh and mean with these people. Uh, but I think that there's something interesting in here for us. So they say, well, this isn't God's, God's love in operation. But let's think about this for a minute. Was it God's plan, do you believe, to bring these people into the promised land? Yes or no? I think we can answer yes. Clearly it was His plan. Uh, was it just planned to bring them into the land at that time? Yeah. Yes, I think we have to say yes. He knew the character of the men that would be chosen, so we know how it all works out. We just went over it. Was this all a play? Was did God just putting on kind of a uh, a big play, and we get to watch it and and learn maybe indirectly from that play? I don't think he was doing that. Do you? Was this an actual delay caused by the decisions of his people? I believe that's the, the, 
the best explanation biblically of what has happened. And here's why. Until they rebelled, there was no guilt. Until the spies make their report and they make a decision, let's go back to Egypt, let's get new leaders and go back to Egypt. Until they began to make those decisions, we're going to stone these leaders and kill them. There wasn't, there wasn't guilt. But once they began to make those decisions, now we come into a situation where, you know, they have they've acted out their rebellion and put it into practice. And so there was no 40 years in the wilderness until they were guilty. And so God would, and what was Moses' argument? By the way, you know that Moses' argument saved the whole thing, right? God wasn't just going to say, well, I'm going to wink at this. Just pretend that last night never happened. And on in you go, go get some grapes. That's not the way it was going to be. So he was always going to judge them uh, bless them also according to his mercy. So what's going on here? What if they had gone on anyway? God said he wouldn't clear the guilty, right? So unless God had intervened and Moses had made this argument, I believe they would have died right there in the wilderness. And that would make the Bible quite a bit different, wouldn't it? So God is true to himself. Uh, they spied out the land, and then they rejected God's plan to enter the land. In his judgment against them, he assigns them a year for a day. We always talk about that when we do our evangelism. The children are not responsible for the, responsible for the unbelief of the adults, so he's going to allow them to go in. But who are responsible? The adults are, and they're going to die in the wilderness. God will not clear the guilty. Now, you say, well, what about their repentance? Well, if you studied Numbers 14... I think you'll reach the same conclusion that I did. In the book of Numbers, chapter 14, I don't see very much repentance. Do you? Does anybody have a verse, even one hint of repentance anywhere in that chapter? No. They're pushing hard, and even at the end of the chapter, they're going to still push to do everything their way. So there's some of them that just don't get it. Even when the chapter's over, they don't get it. But um, so... So if they would have gone, if, if Moses hadn't intervened, this would have come to nothing. Now, so let's look at, again, at, um, let's look now at what would have happened a little bit more. God says you're not going in. He wanted them to go in, but their rebellion led them to the situation where they were not going to go in. So, 14 verse 2, he said, that, he reminded them that they said they wished they had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. That's in verse 14 too. What's going to happen, by the way, now? They're going to die in the wilderness. You know, be careful what you say, you know. They were moaning and complaining to God and, and, and you know, God has a recording of that, I guess. You know, the NSA, make, NSA makes recordings and I guess the angels do too. So uh, he gave them their own words back and so they're going to die in the wilderness. So what would have happened if God would have said, ah, don't worry about it, let's go on in? Is this a case of God's harshness or is this a case of God's mercy? Let's look at a couple of things here on this. Um, figure if I'm on the right slide. All right. So what were they filled with according to, uh, we're not going to study it today, but if you go over to the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, it talks a lot about this same incident. What were the people filled with according to number to, uh, to the book of Hebrews? They were filled with unbelief. Unbelief. They were filled with unbelief. They demonstrated cowardice. So how then could God manifest his power to subdue their enemies if they were deep in unbelief? If he did that, it's not going to work. They had not begun in unbelief, but they had worked themselves into a condition of unbelief. Do we begin in unbelief? I don't, in, in the sense of being, you know, you're in the church, you follow Jesus, but later on, you, sometimes you sort of lose your path. You, you, it, it doesn't work out as like you thought it would, and, and time goes on longer, and, and you sort of begin to drift backwards. And I think these people didn't begin in unbelief, but they ended in unbelief. 
And so that was something that they themselves were responsible for. They had not begun there, but they're going to get into that condition. Most of what God had done to bring them into a position of belief had been thrown away in the influence of the spies and in the way that they had nurtured unbelief. Remember the spies that were sent. In one night, practically, they threw it all away. Not everybody, but certainly the majority. Now, what's God going to do in a case like this? God has a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got things He wants to accomplish. He's going to bring them into the promised land. But a lot of times God has to intervene and take away the leaders. The leadership gets into a problem. So this is what He's doing here. Uh, they had manifested unbelief. They had delayed their own entrance by choosing not to believe in the space of less than two years. They've left Egypt. It's not even two years has gone by. God has done miracle after miracle for them. Think about the miracles that they had. The plagues of Egypt, the crossing the Red Sea, the Passover deliverance, manna in the wilderness on the way. I mean, they had more, more miracles in one year than you and I would think we've experienced in a lifetime. And it was all in front of them, and they still lost, lost their minds. So what's going on here? Right up to this moment in time, God has been throwing miracles their way. But they've regressed, they've indulged unbelief, and they're not going to be allowed to enter in. What God had nurtured, they had squandered. And I would say, too, that since we've been here so long, isn't it possible that what, we, what God has nurtured, we have squandered? It wasn't that many decades ago that who was leading the way in health teaching in the world? God gave us the, we say he gave us the health message. It's even called the right arm, isn't it? But you know what? Today, you can find health food in most different places, and some of it's better than others, right? But uh, yeah, it wasn't that many years ago that the hippies got caught up to us when there were such things as hippies and on a lot of the health areas. I know there was a lot of spiritualism and stuff mixed in, but um, when I was pastoring in Moab, Utah, uh, we had a big health food store there, and it was run by hippies, four hippies. But we went in there and got our food. So anyway, we've had things that God has given us, gifts, health gifts, and other areas, and a lot of these things have been squandered. So here this generation is going to die in the wilderness. So I would say to you, yes, this is a case where it is possible to delay God's purposes. In fact, I don't even think there's a clearer Bible example than Numbers 13 and 14. This is a very clear, indisputably clear, I believe, example uh, of what is going on. Uh, we talked about, you can go to Hebrews 3 and 4, but let me go to some quotations here now uh, that I want to share to you that, to me, sort of uh, clarify or um, confirm what I'm saying to you. This is uh, three paragraphs from, from a book called First Selected Messages, pages 68 and 69. And I'm, let's just look at these. These are from the pen of Ellen White, and uh, let's see what she says. I want you to listen closely for the tense. There's present tense, past tense, right? So let's see. I think you're going to see some repetitions here. Had Adventists, I don't like the way that begins, do you? Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, had they held fast to their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming it to the world, if that had happened, they would have seen the salvation of God. They would, the Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. They, the work would have been, what's the word? Completed. And Christ would have come ere this, before this, to receive his people to their reward. That's pretty plain language, isn't it? But that's just the first of the three paragraphs. The very next paragraph, it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. God did not design that his people, Israel, should wander 40 years in the wilderness. He promised to lead them, he promised to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish them there with the three H's, holy, healthy, and happy people. Holy, healthy, and happy people. 
But those to whom it was first preached went not in because of unbelief, Hebrews 3.19. Their hearts were filled with murmuring, rebellion, and hatred, and he could not fulfill his covenant with them. Now, did it say he could not? He could not. Is there anything that God can't do? He could not. Because of the condition of the people, and because he is a heart of love and mercy, he could not. And we need to apply this to ourselves as well. Anyway, let's get to the, the final paragraph. I've missed one. Here we go. His covenant with them. Last paragraph here. For 40 years did unbelief, there's four things listed here. Unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion. First there's three and then there's four. Shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the four things, unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people. Those are the things that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. So the title of this message is still here after all these years. Why? That's why. It's just as plain as it could be. We're still here after all these years. Why? Because like Israel, we, and we talked about them, but what about us? We are still here because we have manifested those things. Right? We have manifested those things. Unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, and strife amongst ourselves. We have fought over matters that are clear. For example, the scripture evidence is that primary church leadership in the Bible is always the responsibility of spiritually qualified males. The Bible evidence. And yet many among us have pressed and pressed for the ordination of women as pastors over congregations, even when we know the history of this and we know its connection with the cultural changes in the 1960s and 1970s and where it's gone to today, um, even though we know that. Three general conference sessions we've addressed this question, and still today there's open rebellion on this particular question. Strife in support of the truth, that's approved. We are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But things that are settled uh, shouldn't, be, shouldn't go that way. Um, we have manifested unconsecration by otherworldly compromises. How many of us are following health principles we know to be sound applications of Bible truth, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? How many of us are being true to those things? How many of us, and maybe you are eating healthy, but how many of you are getting enough rest at night? <laughs> I, I'm planning to do some videos on getting the right and get, on sleep. But I can't, I can't make my presentations on that now. I can't preach on that topic right now. Do you know why? Because I, I don't qualify. I'm working on it. I, I'm really laboring to get to, to figure out how I can have more sleep. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, we're not following our health principles, getting the exercise we need. We know better. And each of us have our own unique health situation. I know that. But uh, these are cases where I think that we, we could come, come on uh, further. Worldliness. What we watch. What we listen to. And uh, I remember, you know, when we were all worried about televisions. And now we all carry the TV in our pocket. And um, anyway, we all know all these things. Worldliness and what we listen to. What we set our desires upon. Things we know are not right. How far will we go in worldliness? So I think we have some of our own challenges. God's power seems to be missing in our experiences. And uh, what about your local church where you hold your membership? How are you doing there? Are you doing outreach? Are you attending the meetings of the church? Now, do you remember that... Um, well, I want to hold that just for a moment here. So these are things that I think that we need to do better with. And I think God's people in the wilderness, in the wilderness had some problems. Let me give you um, another statement, Patriarchs and Prophets 391, because of their unbelief and cowardice. Cowardice. 
he could not manifest his power to subdue their enemies. Because of their unbelief and cowardice, he, God, cannot manifest his power to subdue their enemies. So I say to you again, regarding the end of the world and the return of Jesus, God has no contingency plans but to be true to himself and to his way of dealing with sin as he has since the beginning of the great controversy. God, I am the Lord, I, ch I change all the time. That's not the way it goes, is it? Herb Douglas. One day, good will triumph over evil, finally and irrevocably. How? By a specific, particular, historical act. God will wait for the maturing of Christian character in a significant number of people as the chief condition determining those events which affect the time when probation for the world will close, and thus the time of the advent. Page 34, and then part of that was from page 65. And then this one from page 73, again, of his book, The End. He, God, he will not close probation for the world until a significant portion of his remnant vindicates his government, proves that his way of life can be lived on earth, and proclaims a credible witness to all nations. What kind of a witness? Incredible. A credible witness. There's a lot of witnesses, witness out there, but God's going to proclaim his people, I believe, will proclaim a credible witness. People will say, well, I don't know about that group or that group or that group. But boy, those Adventists that I knew, they were consistent, they were godly, they were kind, loving, and friendly, and they, uh, they lived up to the faith that they professed. That's a witness that will take us to another place from where we are today. Isn't it true today that when someone says that we cannot overcome, they are echoing the spirit and the attitude of the ten spies. Isn't it true? Well, we just can't overcome. It's just too hard. We can't go in the land. We can't, we can't take it. The people are giant. We're little grasshoppers. Isn't it true that when we teach that our message and our mission is in all practical aspects identical to that of other Christian denominations? Isn't it true that when we do that, we are like the spies who said, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Let's go back to Babylon. Let's go back to Egypt. Things are wonderful there. They have, they have hot pockets there. When we say we can't do evangelism right now because COVID, isn't it, um, isn't it kind of like the congregation in the wilderness complaining that God has given to us an impossible task? Who could, who could do it with COVID going on? God just didn't foresee that. So friends, I believe we've been called to success. I believe that uh, if the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into success in living and giving the third angel's message. It seems fitting again to turn to Jesus. He was leading Israel in the wilderness years, but you know, He was the rock that followed them, um, 1 Corinthians 10. But were there also times in the Gospels when Jesus was hindered in achieving what he desired to do by the spiritual condition of people? Because remember, he's the Lord, he doesn't change. So, for example, when Jesus came back to Nazareth, Matthew 13, 58, if you want to look at it, Matthew 13, 58, he tells us that he did not do many mighty works there. Now, this is Jesus. He did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their, and it's the U word again, because of their unbelief. See? Mark, looking at that same story, says this in Mark 6, verse 5, talking about Jesus, he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. So even Jesus, you think, well, Jesus was this way and God in the wilderness was this way and it was all different. I don't think it was any different, do you? Jesus himself did not do many mighty works because he was hindered by the unbelief of the people. Now, what is it in our life today that nurtures belief? Well, your Bible, your walk with Jesus, your prayer life, your church life, your friends at church, the people you're connected to, doing outreach, talking to your neighbors that don't know Jesus. Those are things that will nurture us but if we're not careful, we are going to be like the spies. Ten of the twelve spies were disastrous. Somewhere Ellen White said at one time, uh, not one in twenty, I think, isn't that the statement? Not one in twenty of us is ready, you know, for Jesus to come. I don't know what the proportion is today. 
Um, but I do believe that uh, what a famous Michigander once said is true. He said, if you think you can or think you can't, you're right. <laughs> and I believe that in spiritual matters, it's similarly true that if you think he can or if you think he can't, you're right. Jesus said how many times? According to my faith, be it unto you. Is that what he said? According to your faith, be it unto you. So Jesus is waiting with longing desire, friends, for us to regroup and to team with him, to draw hearts to himself through the special end-time message he has assigned us, and I believe it's accurate to say, as Herb Douglas does on page 19 of his book, the Adventist, condition, the Adventist mission is to remove the conditions that keep Jesus waiting. We are not still here after all these years because God is dilly-dallying. We are here because we have done that. We have dilly-dallied. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to talk about some of the theological pieces. So tomorrow we're going to talk about what sin is. On Wednesday, we're going to talk about Jesus and how he was victorious. On Thursday, we'll talk about imputed and imparted. And on uh, Friday, something that maybe some of you have never known about, but a giant shift in the church's view of the atonement and some of the key figures and what they explicitly said and taught and wrote and presented. But today... Uh, if we just take one thing, this story from God's people in the wilderness, God loves them, and He loves us, and He wants us to come along so, uh, and to remove the conditions that keep Jesus waiting. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your mercies toward us. Uh, you were very merciful to your people as they were on the very borders of the promised land. If you had allowed them to go in, they would have crashed and burned so royally, Lord. Uh, if you would have allowed your Advent people to go in before now, our condition is such, Lord, that perhaps we would have crashed and burned very thoroughly. Lord, please use us, help us in our own local setting to be faithful and true. And Lord, please bless us by your Spirit. Help us not to be discouraged by this, but to learn from it that you are always true to your way of dealing with sin and you're going to be true to it. You're going to hold us to that even in this year, 2021. Bless us and help us, Lord, because we very much need your help. Through Jesus, Lord, we know you can do it. Help us not to be stubborn and interpose a stubborn will. We ask for your help in that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.